HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community, and community is what we crave. I have to confess a long-term professional crush on Mike Moss, the intrepid New York Times investigative journalist who blew the lid off Big Food's research-based engineering of our bliss point, finding the most exquisite balance of sugar, fat, and salt that renders us helpless faced with an open bag of Doritos or Oreos or pick your poison. His second book, Hook, unmasks the same rigorous research used to addict us to ultra-processed food. He is such a trove of insight and knowledge that I couldn't stop listening to him. I think you will feel the same way. Let's have a listen. It is my enormous pleasure to be speaking with Michael Moss today, an incredible investigative reporter whose two books on the food world set the food world on its little butt. Today, I'd like to just talk to him about how this intrepid investigative journalist, one of his early stories was hiking up the Himalayas to Mount Everest, how he got into food. How'd you pick this topic? How did it find you? Yeah, it was a bit accidental. And back in 2008, I was in Algeria, of all places, tracking down Islamic oh, militants. Of course you were. <laughs> I mean, it's what you do when you work for the New York Times. I mean, I had been traveling to Iraq during the war, writing critically about the conduct of that war, and then looking more broadly at and writing critically about the war on terrorism and in places like Syria and Lebanon and Jordan and Morocco and Algeria, where I got in some trouble and had to come home and find something new to do. And my then editor at the Times, Christine Kay, had spotted this 
outbreak of salmonella in peanuts being manufactured on the border of Alabama and Georgia. And I thought when she suggested to me that I should write about peanuts, I thought she was kind of joking because I was I think I was pitching her some story about, you know, U.S. arms sales overseas. But she impressed upon me that there are some issues here that that we should look at. And in those early stories I did about contamination, it was about sort of this industry losing control over its food chain. Well, these peanuts were being used for ingredients in thousands of products, hundreds at least, sold in the grocery store. And weeks and weeks were going by before the big companies using these peanuts as ingredients could figure out if, in fact, it had this particular factory output in their products. So recalls were being delayed as people were getting sick all around the country. Reporting on sort of contamination in food led me to look at meat and E. coli and kind of the same issue of accidental, if you will, contamination. Although when I looked at meat, on hamburger especially, I heard that there was intentional effort on the part of the industry to lose control of its food chain in order to avoid costly recalls. So you didn't want people getting sick from hamburgers sold in this grocery store then to tie back to this grinding factory in another part of the country or the world and so that you would have this branching recall going on. And I was continuing to write about accidental contamination of food when one of my best sources at the time who tested meat for the meat industry for E. coli hmm. said to me, Michael, as tragic as these incidents are of contamination where people are getting sick and they're dying, yep. you really should look what my industry, and he was talking about the meat industry, intentionally adds to its products over which it has absolute control. He was worried about all the salt going into processed meat. And that got me looking at then sugar and fats as this unholy trinity on which the the processed food industry relies on to get us to not just like their products, but to want more and more. And, and that became the basis of the first book I wrote, looking at especially about those three additives as illustrative of kind of what processed food is all about. Well, that's a long way from Algeria. <laughs> well, yes and no. I was covering a war in those parts of the world. In a lot of ways, I came back to the U.S. and was covering a different kind of war, and in some ways even a larger war, which was basically these gigantic multinational companies gaining control over our eating habits in a way that's like really bad for our health. If you look at just like the raw numbers, before the pandemic, we had run past 42% in terms of the number of adult Americans who are clinically obese, meaning not just somewhat overweight, but an average size person having at least 35 pounds, and in many cases, much more added weight than was maybe desirable for optimum health. And that and type 2 diabetes and gout and etc., I felt I was in a much more consequential war looking at our dealings with these food companies. So that's interesting. You felt that you brought your war reporting skills to clearly what's a more conceptual war, but a war nonetheless, with a much larger 
group of enemy combatants in a way. <laughs> kind of surprising to me. The parallels keep going on, too, because one of the stories I worked on in Iraq was the failure of the Pentagon to provide simple body armor to American and also Iraqi soldiers who are basically just these working class kids who joined the military as a way of making some money and found themselves in the situation where they were totally exposed to roadside bombs, etc. And that, in essence, was a result of lobbyists working for the defense contractors who were much more interested in selling aircraft carriers and big ticket items like that than thinking about what the soldier in the field needed. It's also about shifting of the blame, too. And you see this a lot in companies that make products that are problematic for us, either in having addictive qualities or, or what have you, is that one of the ways that succeed at that is to make us think it's our fault and to shift the responsibility for dealing with that to us. So in Iraq, I was meeting soldiers who were still dumpster diving for metal to attach to their Humvees because they had no protection from roadside bombs and dial forward to food. And here you're meeting people who are trying to like glom on to some fad diet in desperate or move to harsh diet drugs or bariatric surgery as a way of coping with the failure of these companies and or the government to come to grips with our food environment that these companies have created. And again, the onus shifts to us as if we're somehow supposed to be the ones responsible for fixing this problem that I would argue the companies caused. In reading your books, I thought a lot about my older sister, who's now deceased, who had huge struggles with her weight her whole life. A lot of things that I do are informed by her struggles. And we were, we were uh, contemptuous of her, I think. And she would say, you don't understand. It's not all my fault. It's not all my fault. It's my genetics. It's my environment. It's everything. And of course, we would think that there was just something wrong with her that she couldn't control herself. I think after I read your first book, I wish she was still alive so I could have given that book to her to say that you were a cog in a system that preyed on your natural predisposition to like things and do that. That has really changed our understanding of obesity as well as, for me, the consciousness with which food companies and lobbyists work. Where should the line be between the freedom of a company to market their product and the role of the government or the public health system to interfere. How do we set that point? Yeah, one of the big questions going forward is, and by the way, I have to confess too, that I was, I would say even after the first book, I was one of those people who would look at a fat person and go, God, can't, I mean, it's embarrassing, but can't you just like try a little harder? And in fact, at the end of Salt, Sugar, Fat, I had this line, about knowledge is power, now sort of knowing all of the things that the food companies do to get us hooked on their products, that knowing all those tricks would sort of enable us to have better control over what we eat and how much. But it really wasn't until I dug into this question of whether we should be looking at these products as being addictive, like alcohol and tobacco and some drugs, that I really came to appreciate the extraordinary engineering that goes into these products to get us to not just like it through 
perfecting the amounts of salt and sugar and fats and the warlike language that the companies use in fighting each other for stomach share, meaning our stomach and their share of what goes in it. But it really wasn't until I looked at this question of addiction and started talking to people like researchers who used to study alcoholism and now study food addiction, that I really realized that these products are also engineered to destroy our free will. And so sorry for your sister, but she was living in a food environment. I mean, she was like being an alcoholic, having to walk through a bar every day if she wanted to go shopping. For people on that kind of end of the spectrum who are troubled that much by food and food products, that's the equivalent. So when I think of solutions, I think of one needing to deal with 10 different things all at once that have contributed to our loss of control of our eating habits. On top of that, this lifetime of having been told and coached by these companies of what we should value in food in order to change that and change how we value food and take control of that, boy, there's just so much that needs to happen. And it's really sad to see people trying to just glom onto one silver bullet and in hopes that if they change that's that one thing about their eating habits or their life, they can cause that change in valuation. Because again, so often life happens and something comes along to beat them back into their old bad ways. Well, I, I was rereading this morning in the first or second chapter of your book, where you describe the recognition that you could use an MRI, I believe, and really see how different food enjoyment would light up people's brains. And I thought, oh, that's really good. But in a way, that's really bad. <laughs> because <laughs> that's a very powerful predictive tool if I want to know how to reverse engineer something which is addictive. I wonder what you thought about that. I thought it was fascinating, the idea of a Q-tip rolled in chocolate, just waved in front of somebody's nose or mouth, and then getting mm -hmm. complete and utter joy. I probably feel that way about really good French fries, and sometimes nuts, even cold French fries sometimes. But <laughs> just... Yeah, I always want to raise a caveat when it comes to brain science. There was somebody, I think he was at Harvard studying, trying to map the brain's neurology, and he said something like, look, if our understanding of the brain is a mile-long journey, we've come about four inches so far. And also the caveat is there's so much out there in terms of like this brain study showing this and that. And I think it has to be taken with a huge grain of salt, no pun intended, because we don't even really know that these centers of the brain we talk about being the reward center or the cognitive area, what have you, are actually physically different parts of the brain, or is really this going on in this millions and millions of miles of neuron and pathways through the brain. So there's so much that we don't know, but it is really interesting to spend time with scientists who study the brain and looking at our reaction to food. And one of the, one of the most beautiful scientists doing this work was Dana Small. She's now at Yale, but she was the first person to slide people into an fMRI and figure out how to look at the brain on food because 
if you've ever had an MRI test, typically it's used for medical diagnosis, but you know that you're instructed to lie perfectly still because any movement will blur the data, the imagery, if you will, but it's, it's really yep. sort of data. So you can't like chew a bunch of potato chips. But Dana figured out, being a self-professed chocoholic herself, <laughs> that if she just put like a square of milk chocolate lint on people's tongues, it would melt and ooze over their taste buds <laughs> and she could then study. She more recently came up with a really interesting finding, which is that there is a part of the brain, we think, this the stratum. Apparently it's like a little stripey colored shape kind of thing. And the striatum seems to be where, again, caveats here, seems to be where habits form in the brain. And what Dana discovered was that the kind of food that gets the striatum most excited and active in creating habits is food that's both fatty and sweet. And Dana, being a very smart researcher, going to realize that the only real food in nature that's fatty and sweet is breast milk, which raises lots of other interesting questions. But almost entirely, some huge percentage of the products you find in the grocery store are both fat and sweet because they have this incredible ability to, to not just attract us to those products, but to keep us eating kind of beyond the point where we rationally know that we should be eating. And well, that's, um, and that's yeah. <laughs> some brain science that I think is really clever and interesting to think about. I have always heard that one of the reasons that breast milk, that it all works is because it's sweet and that the preference for sweet gets laid down at that point. Whether, and it doesn't matter whether it's breast milk or formula or cow milk, they all have a certain amount of, of sugar in them. But here's my question. Do you yourself believe in free will around food or do you feel that you too are programmed? To what extent do you feel like you have it? Right. People control it. <laughs> so let me tell you a story. And then going back to my earlier confession, I met a man named Don in Ontario, Canada, who had enormous executive function or willpower to the point where he lost 180 pounds in 13 months, I think it was. And he, as he explained, he was incredibly lucky. He had a solid job. He didn't have to work like at night, two jobs to make ends meet. He didn't have kids or even a family to think about in terms of shopping and cooking and what have you. And he could totally focus on losing that weight in those 13 months. But as he explained to me, what happened was that at the point he lost those 180 pounds, and that was half his weight, that's when the nightmare began because his entire body and brain screamed at him to put that weight back on. And he would have to do things like put locks on his kitchen cabinets and sprinkle kitty litter on any like leftovers, like pizza, before he threw it in the garbage in hopes that would prevent him from getting up in the middle of the night and eating those leftovers. He would get on an inner city bus and go to Montreal when things got really bad, just to avoid having any interaction, any possibility of interacting with food. And I think that's one of the, that's one of the really compelling findings for me in the second book I wrote about Hooked is how, is how these products are actually tapping into a biology on our part, yep. where for most of our existence, overeating was a really good thing. 
body fat was a really good thing up until 50 years ago because it enabled you to get through hard times. And certainly in a hunter-gatherer society, going back a bit further, you can see how it would make sense that you would want to overindulge in eating whenever you possibly could because you knew that drought and famine was just around the corner. We can talk about all the ways that these modern day products exploit our basic hmm. biology that we have. But fundamentally, I think that's what's going on. Maybe it's a question even beyond willpower is that they've managed to figure out that biology and use it against us. And so going back to salt, sugar, fat, yeah, we're probably naturally attracted to things that are sugary and fatty based on if you, especially if you were breastfed or formula fed even, but then what do they do? They create their entire food supply, dumping fats and sugar into it. That's usually what I end up saying too to people is that it's not our fault. If you're somebody who's lost control of your eating habits, by no means should you be thinking that's your fault. Again, because of the extraordinary precision engineering that goes into these products that causes you to be unable to put the brakes on a habit that's trying to change your ways. No, I understand. I mean, I am someone who on occasion has to pour hot water into the, the pint of ice cream so that I don't eat the whole thing <laughs> and get it down the drain. I'm not sure this is germane, but I'm going to ask you because it has to do with free will in a way. I've been interested in a conversation that's been going on in the community about epigenetics and their impact on obesity and whether or not that is what we're seeing with a big uptick in obesity, that we're seeing generation skipping um, gene formation that came from an earlier generation that basically right. food was in scarce supply. Have you looked at that at yeah, all? Yeah, and also thinking back to your sister, I think she cited genetics, right? But you hear genetics raised as a causation of or a factor in obesity. And as best I can tell from the science, what we now think is that yes, <laughs> to, to some extent, and I think that the number maybe seven or eight percent, your genetic background can contribute to obesity. But but it's more like, and somebody had a great analogy I heard the other day, and I've just forgotten it, but it's it's more like that genetics will set you up to be more vulnerable to the food environment you're in, as opposed to causing. And the other thing too, I mean, genetics used to be a defense of the food companies. So when I started out on salt, sugar, fat, one of the things I heard from them was, well, look, how can you like blame Twinkies and Oreos and Hot Pockets if not everybody who eats those will lose control. And of course, the answer was, well, that's true of so many products that have addictive qualities. Some people are affected by them differently than other people. The other side to that too is if the real cause of this was genetics, how did it just, this just blow up in the last 50 years? And because genetic adaptation or not adaptation takes time much longer than 50 years. But to get to your point, the epigenetics, which can happen from generation to generation, we may be in fact seeing that play out now where the children of people who are obese through epigenetics become much more vulnerable to gaining too much weight themselves and or and otherwise having trouble with these food products from one generation to the next. And if that's the case, then we're looking at 
just the obesity problem becoming much worse before it's going to start getting better. I'm in agreement with you about that. When I happened to find myself at a city hospital and see the kids waiting in the waiting rooms and in the mm. emergency rooms, it concerns me. The numbers. Well, and just recently, yep. oh my God, just recently we had this change in protocol from the Pediatric Association where they changed from taking a hands-off approach to dealing with kids who are, again, clinically obese, not just overweight, to becoming quite aggressive, the word, quite proactive in prescribing either diet drugs or bariatric surgery. And my <clears throat> reaction to that is I understand in any given situation, but oh my God, what a price to pay. Because yeah. those diet drugs, they work by turning you off on one of life's greatest joys, eating. You no longer look at food with pleasure and joy that you maybe did before. And of course, bariatric surgery, we know that, which is you will no longer eat a normal size meal for the rest of your life. And what an incredible price that these kids are having to pay. But I understand it. And again, going back to free will, one of the, one of the things that astounded me is the biology on body fat, which we're beginning to understand more and more. But it turns out body fat isn't like dumb blubber. It's a living, thinking, diabolical organ, like a liver or the kidney that communicates with the rest of the body. Its sole mission in life is to keep you from messing around with it. So if you're trying to lose weight, your body fat, unbeknownst to you, is sending signals to the brain that you're hungry when you're not hungry. And then it says signals to the rest of the body to slow down your resting metabolism so you will burn less energy just sleeping and sitting around and be less of a threat to the existing body fat. I mean, wow, talk about undermining free will. And again, I think that's why people like pediatricians are, are becoming so concerned and much more aggressive in dealing with early, body fat, early. knowing that... Yeah, because once you gain that weight, it is so hard to get rid of. And in fact, in some ways, you never get rid of. It's always the cells, even though they might be shriveled up, are still there waiting to pounce if you, if life happens and you get off your regimen. I am with you on this. This is, it's terrifying and important because the idea of a 12 or 14 or 16-year-old child having bariatric surgery and having that regimen for the rest of their life it's just tragic to me. But on the other hand, more tragic things could happen to that child through adulthood if they don't do it. And we'll be back with Mike Moss in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on 
old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheese making craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. And we are back with Mike Moss. And so what are the other options? The whole dieting world is frightening for thinking about that being the solution to helping people regain control of their eating habits. Just looking at the numbers on success rates and even the best dieting schemes is, 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 is depressing. One of the things that I've learned that diets work because they focus the mind and Mm. they don't work particularly because they're the food is of this combination or that combination or this time of day or that pH, they work because they focus the mind on not eating. Right. And when they stop working is when you lose focus and you get distracted. And so that really becomes the issue is that, yeah, yeah, if you're like Don in Ontario and you can totally concentrate on whatever diet you have for 13 months, you're going to have great success. But your average person, life is going to happen at some point to knock them off that right. that diet regime that they have. I don't know what you're working on now, but it strikes me if you're not working on the topic of the diet industry and the diet world, it would be great if you did. What are you working on now? I did a piece recently looking at the new dieting app called Noom, which is moon spelled backwards because it's like all over my NPR radio as a sponsor advertiser. Right. And I was curious about it. And kind of the language seemed like a new thing. But when you look at the underlying science, the studies that have been done looking at efficacy, their success rate is about what Weight Watchers was, which is that on average, somebody using the program can hope to lose 6% of their body weight and probably give back 1% or 2% over time. And you shouldn't sneer at 6%, but if you're somebody who's clinically obese, that's not going to bring you out of the obesity category. It can have other sort of positive health, definitely positive health benefits. So I spent some time in Hooked looking at the dieting industry, though, because to my shock and horror, if you will, it's none other than the biggest food processed food companies took ownership of the dieting industry, starting with Heinz, which was making high fructose corn syrup, ketchup and these kind of infinite numbers of French fries that would help you turn your kitchen into a drive-in restaurant, they purchased none other than Weight Watchers. I didn't know that. When it came up on them, yeah, which is incredible. And if you look at Weight Watchers, one of the business models was selling a diet food, Weight Watchers meals that kind of went with the program and what these companies then did and, and others followed suit with Jenny Craig, et cetera. But what they then did was marched around the grocery store creating diet versions of their mainline products all over the store. So you'd stand in the freezer aisle looking and right next to the hot pockets, which is made by Nestle, would be the lean pockets. And if you actually look at the two products, they're really not that much different in terms of calories. But again, this is part of that shifting the blame and responsibility onto us as if we're supposed to stand there in the store and decide how vulnerable we are that week. Can we get by with the lean pocket or do we need the, do we need that emotional boost from eating the full calorie, etc. hot pocket? That's my take on the dieting industry in a, 
in a nutshell, which is that it made perfect sense to me that these food companies glommed onto it as another revenue stream. Even knowing that people wouldn't succeed long term and would be back in the processed food world fold quickly. So looking ahead, what are the things that we can do to help make the available consumer food system more protective of people's health? Yeah, so one of the things you've started to see very slowly is this idea of a government intervention that nudges people toward better purchase decisions through things like attacks on sugary products. And the few places where it's been tried, Philadelphia, Berkeley, who else has done it in the U.S.? Certainly so other that, countries so have tax. tried it, Mexico. Yeah. Soda tax is called, does seem to work. And I used to hate it because it's a regressive tax, right? Poor people are paying for this. A rich person, that tax is inconsequential to relative to your income. But there are some places where they took the revenue and they're pumping it into programs to help the people who are most vulnerable to soda. And that's really great. But also, maybe more importantly, it does seem to cause people to to at least think about their purchasing behavior and to buy less soda. Because as much as we love cheap food, we love we love money too. And so the idea of having to fork out another 10 cents or whatever it might be on that bottle of soda is enough to get us to stop and go, oh, wait a minute. So that government intervention, I think is really fabulous. Ultimately, the other thing I really love that I see out there are the efforts to put gardens in schools, not necessarily to feed kids, but just get them excited about like radishes so they can take those radishes home to their parents and go, hey, can we buy some <laughs> yeah. of these this yeah. weekend? Of course, the problem is in so many places you can't buy fresh radishes. And so you, again, you come back to this notion, if you were queen or king for a day, there would be like 10 things you'd want to try to do all at once, but certainly focusing on kids. Oh, and if I was king for a day, oh my God, we'd bring back home <laughs> economics in school where girls, but also boys to some extent were taught to think about food and taught to cook and shop and et cetera, et cetera. And I think there are some programs doing that in cities that do it successfully by teaching kind of the politics of food or food in the context of politics in the context of basically, and kids really get this. You know, it's like smoking and the big tobacco companies. I mean, do you really want to keep doing what these companies tell you to do? Or do you want to start like thinking for yourself? And in that context, that could make a huge splash. But of course, what school system has the resources these days to start any new curriculum, much less hold on to the ones that they have? All of these efforts on the part of government that involve expenditures, I think are fairly problematic. When I talk to industry people still in the industry or recently coming out of it, they basically their line is, look, the one thing that's really going to cause this industry to change and for the better in terms of the health profile of its products is people demanding better products is people buying less junk and buying more healthy stuff. And these companies are incredibly sensitive to the slightest drop in sales. But that is a treacherous environment. I'll just tell you about in Salt Sugar Fat, I spent much of a chapter on this because I started the book with this secret meeting of the heads of the largest 
food companies in the world, which they act like a cartel of crime families and that they divvy up the turf in the grocery store. And so you have one company having a bunch of the cereal aisle and another frozen foods and what have you. Anyway, so they got together secretly to talk about none other than their growing culpability in the growth of obesity. This was back in 1999, and the meeting was brought by this cabal of insiders who were growing alarmed about their responsibility and culpability for all the health trouble we were having. We were having, they met way back then, and basically in response to the urging of this cabal to start changing their ways, they basically said, no, thank you. But one company unilaterally, and this is actually pretty incredible, on its own, and now we're talking like the early 2000s, set out to make a bunch of changes in the way that it makes and markets products. It said, okay, we're no longer going to advertise our sugary stuff to kids on Saturday morning cartoons. We're no longer going to allow our chemists, food chemists, to use as much salt, sugar, fat as they want to. We're going to put limits on those three ingredients per product line. And we're also going to be more honest with people in terms of package labels and show them more clearly that when they pick up a package of cookies that has five servings in it, when they see that 90 calorie calculation on the package, that's, we're going to tell them that's only for one serving, not for the entire package. Because what the companies realize is that so many people were eating the entire package, right. which maybe the has unit is, 400 right. calories, I'm not doing the math or whatever. So, so Kraft did that for, I don't know, a few months before the other companies realized what it was doing and swooped in, especially in the cookie aisle, with products that are even fattier, more caloric, richer, sweeter than they had before. And Kraft saw sales dip. And so it had to abandon that sort of unilateral strategy. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, you have this incredibly warlike, fierce industry fighting for itself, for market share. And so you'll have to, you'll have to consider that in thinking about ways to nudge it toward, toward better eating habits. And then too, at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, to what extent can they really play a meaningful role going forward? To what extent do we really know what is it? You know, there's this great guy, Kevin Hall at the NIH, National Institutes of Health in 2019, he finally did the first gold standard research trial where he took two groups of people, locked them in the eating lab for two weeks right. and fed You'd them two very different right. types of diets. <laughs> yeah. One of them got wholesome foods that were home cooked or what have you. And the other got like an ultra processed food kind of diet that you would buy shopping in a grocery store. And after two weeks, the group on the processed food diet gained a significant, statistically significant amount of weight, shockingly, because mm. it was only two weeks. But even that study wasn't designed in a way that could tell us what is it about that processed food that causes people to lose control in that way and lose weight. Was it the salt? Was sugar, fat? Was it the lack of fiber? Was it the I have a theory, and it's hardly even a theory, it's more of a hypothesis, but it's drawn from the world of drug addiction, which is that one of the hallmarks of addictive substances is that the faster they hit the brain, 
the more apt you are to act compulsively. That's why people moved from snorting cocaine to smoking crack cocaine because it affected- The kick is so much faster. Yeah, absolutely. And you see this theme of speed when, when, when people are talking about sort of our vulnerability to drugs. And at some point they even measure how fast a substance hits the brain. I think smoking a cigarette takes about 10 seconds to fully activate the brain. Salt, sugar, fat, they take less than one second to hit the brain because of this kind of trick that they play, right? They don't go directly to the brain. They hit our taste buds, which send that neuro signal to the brain. And there was this very cool study where scientists sat people down and asked them to push a button when they tasted something sweet. And they were pushing that button in eight tenths of a second because we are wired to be attracted to things like salt, sugar, fat. Again, going back to how for most of our existence, getting jazzed by food was a really great thing. It was a matter of life and death. Anyway, so when you think about processed food, and I've started to call these products fast groceries, like fast food, because everything about them is designed for speed. The manufacturing process to reduce the cost, because we get really excited biologically about about food that's cheap. The packaging is designed to allow us to get inside the packages really fast. At one point, the cereal makers started making a wider box so you could get your whole paw in there and scoop out and eat cereal like a snack instead of a breakfast thing. But then also in terms of kind of the dynamics of the ultra processing being heavily dependent on these on salt, sugar, fat, and things like white flour, which gets converted into sugar starting as soon as it touches the mouth, but also in the gut. The speed with which these products hit the brain. That, And what I really love about looking at it that way, and who knows, a great scientist like Kevin Hall may someday be able to show this, but the corollary to that, or the solution to speed, take a guess what that is. It's cooking. Um, making food from scratch because it not because it tastes bad. <laughs> that was always people always joke with me about that, but it's not because what you're cooking is going to taste bad that causes people to eat less. It's that you slow down and you become more mindful in your body. My mom always used to say to us before I think there was any science on this that look, you could slow down at the dinner table, not just to keep from choking on the roast beef, but to give your stomach time to register what you're eating. And now the thought is it takes the stomach about or the gut about 20 minutes to send those signals of fullness to the to the brain. But the cooking process kind of starts that going even before you sit down to the table. And as a way to regain control, Wow. I think there's nothing better than finding, and you don't have to cook everything, right? But just pick out some things you're buying in the grocery store now, like spaghetti sauce, and go, I'm going to make this for myself. And that's actually a super easy one. I have a 90-second recipe for spaghetti sauce. (laughs) It's hard to argue that's inconvenient. Going back to your question of kind of what we could do, one of the great lessons from looking at food, looking at processed food as being thinking about it as being an addictive substance is that there are lessons to be drawn from the world of addiction. And one of the things about addiction is that it often happens on a spectrum, right? Not everybody who drinks alcohol becomes an alcoholic, right? Some people are Mm -hmm. unaffected. There are people who can use heroin 
and have used heroin their entire lives without seemingly being negatively affected by that. And they can take it or leave it. By no means am I, am I encouraging that. But by that same token, people who are affected by it, the basic advice in, in addiction therapy is abstention. Do everything you can to avoid interacting with that product or the people selling that product or people using that product. And I think the same is true for people who are at that end of the spectrum dealing with food trouble. If you're somebody who can't open up a bag of Oreos and eat just one, and there's so many people like that, or a bag of chips, you're probably better off taking the advice of drug addiction people and abstaining, just removing that product from your life. And of course, one of the hardships for people like Don, I mentioned in Ontario, who like completely reformed their eating habits is that it's so hard to abstain. I mean, first off, you can't abstain from food overall, but it's so hard to abstain from trigger products because sugar is your trigger that causes you to lose control. Last count I saw was like two thirds of the grocery store has added sugar in the products. And so you're walking through a place with landmines all over the place if you're trying to buy products that won't cause you to lose control. But then in the middle of the spectrum, you have people who maybe get cravings for cookies or what have you at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. There are moments in the day when you become more vulnerable than you will be at other times of the day. And then the lesson from the world of addiction is, is understanding that these cravings happen so fast, right? There we are with speed again, is that once they hit the brain, the part of the brain that, that, that gets us to do things is often running before the stop part of the brain that gets us to think about the consequences of what we're doing can kick in. And so the advice from drug addiction is that you got to do everything you can to get ahead of that craving. And so no matter what your strategy is to avoid that 3 p.m. craving for cookies, whether it's get up and take a walk or call a friend or eat something else like a handful of nuts or what have you, you pretty much need to be executing that strategy at like 2.45 in order to ward off the craving, because again, once that craving hits, you know, you're lost. And then as we talked about cooking at the other end of the spectrum, so many people out there are troubled by the modern food environment simply by missing like the love and the joy of sitting down with family and friends to a home-cooked meal. It seems to be there the solution yeah. you want to be working on is finding ways to even in a crazy busy life, finding ways to conveniently cook your own food. I, I was just thinking as you were speaking about a professor of mine in business school who had to, he had to give up coffee, cigarettes, and alcohol. He really only had to give up the cigarettes. His doctor told him he had to give up the cigarettes. But he said if he gave up the cigarettes, he had to give up coffee because if, as soon as he would have coffee, he would want a cigarette. And as soon as he would have a drink, he would want a cigarette. So he just had to give up everything so that there were no triggers. He did, but he was a person of great personal will. And I think about that for people to understand their own triggers. Not simple. Not simple. When the... Well, yeah. <laughs> You know, that, that reminds me, that, I don't know if it's consolation or not, but the people who make these products, you know, this trillion dollar industry, especially the executives, they don't eat this stuff. 
they don't touch <laughs> their own product. I mean, in some cases they don't have to, it's because it's economics, right? They have their spouse doesn't have to work outside of the home and can spend time making great meals or they have personal chefs or they have personal trainers and really paying attention to that. But for other reasons, they know how treacherous these products are. And there, I spent time with a former chief technical officer at Kraft, now Kraft Heinz. He's the guy who's in charge of all science of a product. And he used to exercise quite a bit and would jog to control his weight. And one day he blew out his knee and couldn't run anymore. And his solution to dealing with that situation was to start avoiding all of the more tempting of his company's products. Because he was the kind of guy who would come home from work and have a martini and open up a bag of chips and he would eat the entire bag of chips. He also interestingly stopped drinking as a way of dealing with calories and figured, here's a way I can eliminate a big chunk of the calories I'm consuming. I'm just going to stop drinking alcohol or anything for that matter with calories in it. Mm -hmm. I want to get my calories from stuff we chew. But Again, everybody's strategy is different, but I think it could be some consolation for people, or if not a warning, that these people making these products are not eating them. They're making them for you to eat. And I, <laughs> I think if you think on that a little bit, it may help you in changing how you value these products. It is just so great to talk to you. I need to let you go, but this is just fascinating. And I hope we can do it another time. Are you staying focused in this field going forward or you're... Yeah, I'm actually doing some film work right now. A documentary, but also more excitingly looking at a way to fictionalize uh, some of the things we've been talking about relating to the world of food giants in a way that might be able to reach like a broader audience. Great so idea. It's, that's a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah. Mike Moss, thank you so much. This has just been great. Oh. And yeah, I so recommend nice to everybody, you. your books are seminal and fascinating and fun to read. Fun to read about a subject that isn't fun to know about. But <laughs> thank you so much. This well, is just great. Thank you so much for your work. It's fabulous. Thank you, Mike. We cannot wait to follow your next projects. Keep us in the loop. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.